And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello and welcome everyone to the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. As always, I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to welcome everyone to the show. We've got a heck of a show planned for you today. I know it's been a little while since our last episode, so hopefully this one will make up for that wait with some excellent Dai Kaiju action. Hope all of you enjoyed our previous episode, where we took a look at episodes 3 and 4 of the original Ultraman TV series, featuring Naranga and Ragon, uh, two very cool monsters who have recently actually appeared in some capacity in uh, modern stuff, but uh, that's a discussion for another time. Today, we are going to be taking a look at the final three issues of IDW's Godzilla series, their second ongoing series, to finish that one up. We also have, as always, an issue of Marvel Comics Shogun Warriors, Shogun Warriors number five. So we've got a full full cast of stuff to get done on this episode, so we're going to take a quick break and then jump right into it. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay, so what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones. Whoa, those things. Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. As I said, we're going to be taking a look at the final three issues of IDW's second ongoing Godzilla comic book series, aptly titled Godzilla. Uh, We've covered all the previous issues, uh, issues 1 through 10, on various episodes of the Earth Destruction Directive already, so this is uh, starting with issue number 11. We're going to run on straight on through to the end of the series. 
So we're going to get started right here with Godzilla number 11, which has a cover price of $3.99. That's absolutely amazing. Uh, <laughs> cover date, March 2013. The writer is Dwayne Swierzynski, artist Simon Gain, colorist Rhonda Pattison, letterer, creative consultant Chris Mallory, editor Bobby Kernow, and our issue is entitled The War's Not Over Until the Last Monster Goes Home. As boxer Hikaru and Harrison fly towards New York in the Mechagodzilla, with Kumunga hitching a ride, they watch the news broadcasts of the battles taking place all over the world. In California, Godzilla brawls with Hedra. The smog monster is able to use his flying form and caustic slime to slow down the King of the Monsters, but Godzilla eventually gets a hold of him and stomps Hedra into nothingness. Across the country in New York, Space Godzilla is met with stiff resistance from Batra and Titanosaurus, but the two Earth monsters are outclassed and laid low by Space Godzilla in short order. In Hong Kong, Gigan's rampage is halted by Angerus, and when the spiny quadruped is beaten back by Gigan's counterattack, Rodan joins the fray, smashing Gigan's visor and knocking the cyborg down. After a pit stop in Pittsburgh to refuel the Mechagodzilla, Boxer and his team arrive in New York and confront Monster X. Kumanga attacks first, but is no match for X, who cracks the spider's carapace and hurls him like a weapon at the MG. Hikari is able to activate the Absolute Zero Cannon and score a hit on X, but X's beams smash the robot into the Hudson River, where it begins to sink, flooding the cockpit. With the odds slim and growing slimmer, Godzilla arrives in the Big Apple. Okay, uh, really action-packed issue this time. Let's start with the cover. I have cover... Uh, the standard cover, which is uh, by Bob Eggleton, who's been doing the painted covers. And this is a shot with uh, Hedra, half of Hedra's face in the foreground on the right-hand side. And in the background, we see Godzilla standing in front of a couple of smokestacks. Hedra really looks fantastic. Eggleton's done some great work on Hedra's very iconic eyeball that is staring right at the reader. And some nice blue-green, reddish-orangey, you know, Hedra's colors are always kind of muddled on purpose, so I, I really like what he's done here. Um, pages two and three is a two-page splash of Godzilla and Hedra uh, clashing out in the middle of the desert in California. What I really like, something that's been done throughout this series, and I'm not sure if this is Chris Mallory's doing as the letterer or Simon Gain doing it in the art, but the sound effects are designed to look like katakana. They're designed to look like Japanese writing, even though they're uh, English letters. So here, as Godzilla and Hedra tangle, the sound effect is Godzilla's screeonk. But if you look at it, it looks like katakana at first. Very neat. Uh, page four, panel, panel two. Godzilla blasts right through Hedra's head with his uh, atomic breath. And uh, it, in the next panel, <coughs> excuse me, we see Hedra's eye gets all kind of squinty as he gets blasted. Because it's clear that even though it's difficult to hurt Hedra, blasting him like that seemed to have the desired effect from the King of Monsters. Um, page 5, Hedra has transformed into his flying mode and then picks up Godzilla and drops him down a canyon. And uh, in a, it's almost comical here on the last panel... Hedra drops Godzilla and he hits every single outcropping, all three that are shown on the valley as he falls down into the canyon. Uh, I got the sense almost of when Homer Simpson tried to jump over the Springfield Gorge on uh, Bart's um, skateboard and then hit every 
<laughs> hit every uh, cliff face on the way down, then they dragged him back up and he fell back down again. That's kind of what I thought of from there. All I gotta say is, ouch. Jumping over to page 7, uh, here in Hong Kong, uh, Gigan and Anguirus are tangling, and I have to see this as a, a direct Godzilla vs. Gigan reference, because, of course, Godzilla's ally in Godzilla vs. Gigan was Anguirus, and there are several scenes of the two of them mixing it up. Anguirus uses his uh, rolling ball attack, uh, like in the movie Final Wars, also very commonly seen in the video game Godzilla Destroy All Monsters Melee. Now what's interesting is that that was the origin of it. Anguirus never rolled up in a ball like that until Destroy All Monsters Melee, but now it's become almost a iconic attack for him despite its origins not being in the films. So great to see it here as he takes down Gigan with it. Turning over to uh, page 10, channel 6, uh, channel 6, <laughs> page 10, panel 6, uh, we see Godzilla use his flying trick to get out of the canyon that Hedra has dropped him in. Again, a direct reference to Godzilla versus a smog monster, where Godzilla tucks his tail between his legs and then uses his atomic breath to fly like a rocket ship. Very funny that they bring out this old, you know, late Showa era kind of very cheesy sort of effect, so it, but it's very appropriate here since he is in fact fighting Hedra, so that makes sense. Page 11, uh, Batra and Titanosaurus are completely laid out by Space Godzilla. And, um, you know, they, they are putting up a fight, but then we see Space Godzilla just whack, in fact the sound effect is fuck, as he hits Batra with his tail, knocking him directly into Titanosaurus's head. And... It, it's it's almost as if there's like a feedback effect because Batra is firing his eye beams when it happens because we see them silhouetted with bright pink energy crackling all around them and then they're both it just disappear under the the water of the Hudson River. Very nice uh, piece of artwork here. Also interesting, two Earth monsters here who were villains in their movies, but they're heroes in this story because this story deals with you know the the space monsters coming to Earth. So Batra and Titanosaurus, despite being villains in their film appearances pushed into the roles of heroes here. I like that. Again, the difference between Earth monsters and space monsters was very important in the Showa era, and, and I like that they're keeping that here. Uh, page 12, panel 2, or excuse me, panel 3, Rodan uses a flyby attack using the, um, the spikes on his chest to shatter Gigan's visor. Very cool shot here. And we just see the little uh, red and they look like glass, but, you know, whatever they are on Gigan, just splintering off into pieces as he falls back, and he's his uh, beak is agape, and so you can, you can just imagine him screeching in pain as Rodan uh, smashes his visor. Very cool. And interesting, throughout the issue, and in fact throughout the next three issues, we sometimes see on the bottom of panels little news tickers as we're looking at the television broadcast, and this one simply says, Rodan engages Gigan. And just, uh, really, I, I'm, I'm impressed that they managed to get a camera shot this close to Gigan's head of Rodan smashing out the visor. Page 13 is, is very interesting artistically. It is a 12-panel grid um, of Godzilla, you know, using his, his flight trick to knock Hedra out of the sky. And then he steps up and simply stomps him over and over and over and over and over until there's absolutely nothing left. Uh, this this leads into page the next page on page 14 when there's very little. Hedra's just a puddle basically, and, and Godzilla blasts him with a 
ba-boom of atomic breath, and there's just there's absolutely nothing left of Hedra after this. Uh, Godzilla really goes to town on the smog monster and, and lays him low. It's a very neat sequence. Also interesting to see Gain break out the, the tight grid panel, which is not something we've really seen throughout this series, so it really stands out. And that, with the repetition of the sound effects of the boom, 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 very nice sequence here. Page 14, panel 5. <laughs> we finally catch up with Boxer and Hikaru and Harrison, and they land at a nuclear power plant in Pittsburgh. Now, I'm not sure which plant this is supposed to be, but they land at one and uh, and demand that they, that they fill her up, as Boxer says. And now, while they're filling up the tank, uh, so to speak... Hikaru says to Boxer, says, we're hopelessly outclassed. Did you see what that thing did, that thing was doing to New York? This Monster X looks insanely powerful. It has already bested Mothra. And Boxer's got this, uh, you know what, eating grin on his face. He says, yeah, but we've got a robot and a giant spider. And you cannot argue with that kind of logic. It simply doesn't work. Of course, things don't work out so good for Kumanga. We see on page 16, panel 5, uh, Kumanga... Uh, jumps off the Mechagodzilla and engages and uh, shoots his webs all over uh, Monster X. Well, Monster X simply breaks the web with his with his beams and then picks up Kumanga and cracks him in half. It's just krakow, pop, and then pop, pop, pop as he breaks the carapace of Kumanga. And all I got to say is, ouch, that's all you really can say to that. And then, of course, he throws it right at, throws the carcass of Kumanga right at the Mechagodzilla. One of his legs comes off as he throws it. It's just like, yikes. Not, not good. Not good. Um, turning over to page 18, panel 6, Mechagodzilla gets hit with the gravity beams um, from Monster X, and the MG just goes flying. I mean, this is a big robot just flying backwards through the sky, prone. It's It's a very... Uh, interesting image. You know, because, I mean, we see the Kiru flying using his jets, like he does his big shoulder block in Godzilla x Mechagodzilla, but here he's just being thrown back by the gravity beams, you know. It's it's really um, very striking. And, of course, uh, Harrison, over the loudspeaker, yells, Ah, bollocks! Which, of course, is normally his dad's line. And, uh, just funny to see Harrison yell it over the Mechagodzilla's loudspeaker. Uh, page 20, uh, panel one, as uh, the monsters, the evil monsters, have basically taken over New York. We get to see a great shot here of the Space Godzilla standing in front of the Brooklyn Bridge. Is the Brooklyn Bridge or George Washington Bridge? It looks like the Brooklyn Bridge, but it's hard to tell because we don't know exactly where they are. Um, and he's all in silhouette, except for all his crystals. Are, are glowing white, and we can see his teeth and his claws and his eyes. So very nice, just showing off the the crystalline aspects of Space Godzilla, which is, of course, his kind of bread and butter from an, uh, uh, a look. And then uh, last page of the comic, page 21, as Godzilla arrives, we get a full-page splash of Godzilla facing off with the two space monsters, with Space Godzilla and Monster X. And I'm sorry, you see that image, and it's like, well, I know I'm going to pick up the the next issue of that. Um, this issue was essentially just an issue-long fight, but it's got really good pacing and great art. Simon Gaines' art has, has been knocking it out of the park. This is no exception. Um, so you don't mind that's an issue-long fight at all. The story at this point is reaching its crescendo very rapidly. We're all just kind of along for the ride. Again, when the story is this good and the action is this good, you don't mind that there's not a huge amount of character development. We're just, ex uh, you know... 
all caught up in the monster action. So we're just going to keep that momentum going, go right into the next issue. Uh, Godzilla number 12, with a cover date of April 2013, is by all the same folks as before. Dwayne Swierzynski, writer, Simon Gain, artist, Rhonda Patterson, colorist. Letterer, creative consultant, Chris Mallory, editor, Bobby Kernow, and is entitled, This Time, He's Fighting for His Life. In what's left of New York, the battle rages on between the three giant monsters. Godzilla, Space Godzilla, and Monster X's beams all collide in midair, setting off an explosion which levels most of the remaining city and blasts Godzilla into the Hudson River. Space Godzilla moves in for the kill, smashing Godzilla with his tail and lighting him up with his corona beam. Inside the prone and rapidly flooding Mechagodzilla, Boxer's plan is to try to fire the Absolute Zero Cannon once more. Harrison swims through the flooded chambers and finds the controls triggering the cannon and, hitting spa- and hits Space Godzilla square in the chest. As Boxer, Hikari, and Harrison swim for safety, Godzilla finishes off Space Godzilla with a blast of atomic breath, which shatters his crystals to shards. In Hong Kong, the battle between Rodan, Anguirus, and Gigan is far from over. Rodan hits Gigan with a flying tackle, but now he is trapped as Gigan activates the jet cutter, slicing into him. Anguirus recovers enough to hit Gigan with another rolling tackle, knocking the space monster down again and freeing Rodan from his clutches. Back in New York, it's down to Godzilla and Monster X amidst the ruins. The two exchange blows back and forth, but when Godzilla hits a solid shot of atomic breath, X reveals his true form, Kaiser Ghidorah. Godzilla is taken aback by the transformation, and then blasted with gravity beams to Liberty Island, where he crashes through the Statue of Liberty. On shore, Boxer gives Hikari mouth-to-mouth, and she sputters back to life, where a military chopper lands nearby. On board is Claire, thought dead in the destruction of Vancouver. She says she's been busy, and as everyone gets aboard the helicopter, she says that she has the weapon which will finally finish this nightmare. Oh boy, another another pulse-pounding type of action-packed issue here. Uh, let's start with the cover. Again, I have the standard cover, which is once more a painted cover by Bob Eggleton. This one shows Godzilla in the foreground, and there's an explosion right next to him, and I don't know if it's supposed to be an atomic explosion or perhaps a meteor impacting of some kind, because in the back is a profile shot of Monster X, so we get to see... Monster X is looking to the left, so we can see two of his three heads staring off into the left. Great detail work on all the ridges and bone structure and all the strange, almost Geiger-esque uh, design elements on Monster X here. Monster X is is kind of an interesting monster because he's, you know, we all kind of, if, if we've seen Final Wars, we know he's just a first form. But he, he's got an interesting design. I like that he's humanoid, but not too humanoid. So that, that was pretty neat. Uh, let's see. Okay, so page two and three. This is an absolutely insane double uh, page splash of the three beams impacting each other. Um, the, it's It starts out almost white at the middle, and there's blue, uh, lighter blue, and then blue gets darker as we move out. We see all three monsters flying off in opposite directions. There's a great hand-lettered a sound effect of THROOM in just giant letters. We see all the beams just kind of flailing out as uh, as all the monsters are, are blown back. Just a great, great piece of artwork here. And uh, I, I really love This is just fantastic. What a way to start the story here. Uh, 
So turning over to um, page five, um, where Space Godzilla is engaging with Godzilla in, let's see, panels three and four, Space Godzilla uses some great uh, fighting techniques because he levitates up above Godzilla's head and then uses that height advantage to whack him with the with the crystalline uh, spikes on his tail with a bam. It's almost a little bit like, I guess, uh, Revenge of the Sith. You know, I've got the high ground. You can't win. You don't want to fight Space Godzilla when he's got the high ground, I suppose. Uh, turning over to page 8, we get to see Rodan and Gigan, and panel 4 here is a little gruesome. I mean, because essentially... You know, Rodan is now hooked. Uh, Gigan has hooked him with his hooks and pulled him right into him, and so he's activated the jet cutter, which is the buzzsaw that is in Gigan's stomach. And this is a gruesome weapon to begin with. It's, it's you know, a lot of people remember in Godzilla vs. Gigan, and then a year later in Godzilla vs. Megalon, Gigan uses the jet cutter to actually cut through Godzilla's hide. And, you know, we see blood spurting out, and that's the same here. We see blood spurting out of Rodan as Gigan has him hooked. And we can see um, the pained look in Rodan's face as his eyes are clenched and his beak is wide open, shrieking that Gigan's got him hooked up here in the jet cutter. Very, you know, yikes right there. Uh, turning to page 10, panel 2, as Harrison gets the absolute zero cannon uh, activated, it completely blows back the Space Godzilla. This is, to me, almost a callback to previous issue when Monster X used the gravity beams to just completely wipe out the Mechagodzilla. Well, here, the Mechagodzilla does that to Space Godzilla, and he is just thrown out of the ocean and just flies through the air. And um, it's, uh, you know, th this is... This is uh, the payoff of the panels showing his power from a few pages back, I think, as we saw Space Godzilla really putting a, a breeding on Godzilla, and now we see the the, abs the 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 level of power of the Absolute Zero Cannon here, just to completely wipe him out. This goes right onto the next page when, on the first panel, Godzilla just unloads with atomic breath and shatters all of Space Godzilla's crystals, and you know, that's the source of his power. So anytime Godzilla can do that, it's it's impressive. Uh, G didn't even get to do this in the movie. In in Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, it's Mogura's spiral grenades that destroy his shoulder crystals, not Godzilla. So this was, I thought, very fitting. Something I would have liked to have seen in Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, but I'm very happy to see it here. Um, turn over to the next page, we get a big helicopter shot of Godzilla and Monster X kind of staring each other down there. It looks like they're on the, the bottom side of, of Manhattan is what it looks like from the, the way that the city is drawn here. They, they are relatively small in the helicopter shot, so this is really great perspective. Because even though, you know, this is, like I said, the typical helicopter flying over the city sort of look, uh, we see the monsters standing tall above the buildings, but even then, they're small in in perspective. It's a neat little panel that just shows the... You know, the how do, how do I put this? It shows the scale really well of the level of devastation that these monsters are wreaking. And it shows the scale really well to the, the skyscrapers around them. Uh, turning over to page uh, 14, um, this is a nice little five-panel uh, sequence here where Monster X turns into Kaiser Ghidorah. We see the uh, the heads begin to vibrate and split apart, the wings burst out, and then they... The, the extra feet come out of the front, and then it is Kaiser Ghidorah standing tall. What's interesting is that, for whatever reason, 
Um, Mon Kaiser Ghidorah is referred to as Monster X2 in the notes. If you take a look at any Godzilla comic book, look in the inside front cover. Uh, underneath the copyright information, or right by the copyright information, they'll have these little circles that show you all the monsters that appear in the book. Now, this is a requirement of Toho for licensing their characters. And they have a little silhouette of the of the monster, and then they have their preferred English name from Toho. Well, they list Monster X, and right next to him is clearly Kaiser Ghidorah, and they call him Monster X2. Now, in the comic, he's referred to as Kaiser Ghidorah. In Godzilla Final Wars, he's referred to as Kaiser Ghidorah, or Kaiser King Ghidorah, depending on whether you're watching the dub or not. So, my question is, why is this? The only thing I can think of is that this goes back to when Final Wars was first released, and they the Monster X's identity was keeping under was keeping was kept under wraps, and his identity of his second form was similarly kept under wraps so as not to spoil the endings. But the only reason I can think of with that, Kaiser Ghidorah is to me has always kind of reminded me a little bit of a mix of Des Ghidorah from the first Heisei Mothra film, and Cretaceous King Ghidorah from the third Heisei Mothra film. Um, the Cretaceous King Ghidorah walked on all fours, like uh, Kaiser King Ghidorah does, and Des Ghidorah had the darker coloring. Uh, Kaiser Ghidorah is kind of a mix of gold and black. So, he looks really cool under the pencil of Simon Gain here. I mean, he looks better, I think, here than he did in Final Wars. So, that was... Uh, a, a nice touch. Also interesting is that on page 15 we get to see Kaiser Ghidorah right next to Godzilla and he towers over him. The size difference between these monsters as demonstrated in Final Wars is maintained here in the comic. Very nice touch of continuity. King Ghidorah is normally taller than Godzilla and Kaiser King Ghidorah is even bigger than King Ghidorah so I really like that. Also on page 15 panel 2 we see Godzilla's eyes go just almost goggle-eyed wide, staring at, at Kaiser Ghidorah. So he's a bit taken aback by this sudden new appear, uh, appearance on the scene here. Uh, turning over to, to page 20, um, as after uh, Boxer revives uh, Hikaru, uh, the chopper lands and out comes Claire, and I can honestly say I did not see that coming. I really thought that after the destruction of Vancouver, we were not seeing Claire again. We had already seen them lose another member of the team. Uh, you know, that this was not something I expected at all. So this was a big shock to me. But I was very happy to see Claire come back. She's a tough cookie. And uh, she is looking a little worse for wear. She's got some scars on her face, one running on her on her left cheek and then one above her right eye. So she And she's not really happy. She says to Boxer, you left me to die in Vancouver, but I'm willing to put that aside for now. There's more to this than me and you. Uh, very, very funny. On page 21, Godzilla is thrown back by Kaiser Ghidorah's gravity beams and utterly destroys Lady Liberty, smashing into the base there on Ellis Island with the statue looking like it's going to topple on top of him. Um, a, a subtle dig at uh, Godzilla 98, perhaps? You know, uh, the, the Japanese poster featured Godzilla's, or, or should say Zilla's foot, stepping behind the Statue of Liberty with the big lightning bolt. I actually have not only a one-sheet of that, I have that on a t-shirt. Uh, one of the, the best image, probably, from that film. So, is that a, a nod? I'll leave that up to the, to the listener to decide. 
page 22, the final page of the comic, is the final showdown. Uh, Godzilla versus Kaiser Ghidorah. And we see Boxer and his crew in their chopper flying in between him. And um, we see a caption box from Claire, the weapon that's going to end this nightmare once and for all. It's, it's all come down to this. You know, it's Godzilla versus the ultimate form of his ultimate enemy in, in Kaiser King Ghidorah. Uh, just really, man, you, you can't, you see that again, just like I said last time, you're going to buy the next issue. There's no way you're going to let that go. More carnage and more chaos as the Daikaiju War wages on. The return of Claire was a great supply, yeah, a great surprise, especially to me. And we're in high gear right now as we move into the finale next issue. The comic is very fast-paced, but it doesn't feel light on content. There's a lot going on. Um... Uh, so Swarzynski and Gain pack a lot into the page count that they have. So even though it's primarily action, there's a lot going on. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it feels like you're watching a great monster movie. And to me, that's the ultimate compliment you can give to a giant monster comic book, is that it feels like you're watching a giant monster movie. You know? I, I know there, that there's some that comics have strengths that movies don't, but at the end of the day, the same feeling of adrenaline you get from watching a great movie you should get from get, reading a great comic. And that's what we're getting here. All right, Godzilla number 13. Once again, by the same creative crew, Dwayne Swierzynski, writer, Simon Gain, artist, Rhonda Patterson, colorist, Chris Mowry, letterer, creative consultant, and editor, Bobby Kernow. Cover dated May 2013. The title is The End of This Nightmare Once and for All. In New York, Godzilla and Kaiser Ghidorah face off as Boxer and his team close in on the helicopter. As the two behemoths engage, Claire tells Boxer that she has perfected her old headache beam, now called the Skull Splitter. But Boxer wants to use it on Kaiser Ghidorah instead, saying that if the Grey Lizard goes down, the whole world is doomed. Kaiser Ghidorah uses his gravity beams to toss Godzilla around like a rag doll, smashing him through the Brooklyn Bridge. Godzilla is game, though, and continues to push in close to the space monster. Kaiser Ghidorah returns the favor, lifting Godzilla high above the city with his gravity beams before dropping him like a living bomb to the ground and stomping him into the ground. Harrison maneuvers the chopper into place, and Boxer takes aim at a head, when out of the sky shrieks Rodan. Rodan, Boxer's crew, and the defiant Godzilla all attack Kaiser Ghidorah. The skull splitter does some damage, but not enough to stop the space monitor from pushing the chopper out of range. A snap of super gale-force winds is enough for Rodan to decapitate one of Kaiser Ghidorah's heads, but he is blasted over the horizon by a gravity beam for his trouble. Godzilla is still standing, though, and grabs one of Kaiser Ghidorah's remaining heads and uses its sharp fangs to rip off the other head. Reeling, the space monster is blasted with atomic breath and collapses, where Godzilla then repeatedly crushes the final head underneath his heel, killing Kaiser Ghidorah. From the chopper, Boxer is keenly observing the battle, and tells Harrison to get as close to Godzilla as possible. Claire is in disbelief, demanding that Boxer call off his little revenge plot. Boxer is full of cold fury, and he tells Claire that Godzilla might have saved the world, but he still killed his daughter, and that he won't let the monster simply stomp off into the sunset. Boxer fires a skull splitter, having minimal effect on the King of Monsters. Grabbing the weapon, Boxer makes the only choice he can leaps into Godzilla's mouth to bring him down from the inside. As Boxer disappears, Harrison breaks his vow of silence, screaming out in desperation for his dad. Seven days later, at Boxer's gravesite in D.C., Claire and Hikaru ask Harrison what the next step is. 
His reply is that the world has been changed, and that the danger is not past, that the only choice is to follow in his father's footsteps and protect the Earth. The end. Damn. That's all I can say. I don't mean to sound like Ron Simmons, but man, what a blow-off this issue was. What a finale to this series. Let's get right into it. Uh, uh, interestingly, I, for some reason, ended up with the cover B uh, cover to this, with art by Matt Frank, which shows Kaiser Ghidra stomping on, on Godzilla's head while his three... Uh, three heads kind of cackle above him. It's really nice. I really like Matt Frank's uh, art with this. I was just a little surprised because DCBS had been getting me the standard cover or cover A for all of the previous issues. Maybe I ordered the wrong one. I like both of them, so I don't have a problem. The uh, Eggleton cover is actually a gatefold cover. It wraps around the front and the back, and uh, the front cover just shows Godzilla in, in uh, medium close-up roaring, and as we see, the back cover shows a mushroom cloud in the background, um, and, and there's a bright orange sky. I'm going to use this image as the show notes, so you'll get a chance to see this one. It's really nice, but honestly, can't go wrong with most of the covers on this series, and this one's no exception. Getting the issue itself, page one, panel one, the Statue of Liberty in ruins. This pretty much sets the stage for the battle. New York is a wasteland after these space monsters and the Earth monsters have been going at it. And there's not much left of the city to destroy. And that's the only setting I can imagine that would be appropriate for the throwdown that we get here. Uh, down over on, on panel four, again, gain keeps the height... Uh, discrepancy between Godzilla and Kaiser Ghidorah in keeps it here as we see Kaiser Ghidorah towering and looming over Godzilla. It's not many monsters that can tower over Godzilla, but Kaiser Ghidorah is one of them. Page three, panel two. Uh, after Kaiser Ghidorah blasts Godzilla with the gravity beams, he is falling headfirst towards the, the Brooklyn Bridge, and ouch! What a way to be knocked down like that. It's just so. I don't know, just disrespectful almost just to see the King of Monsters um, ass over tea kettle, as my brother would say, falling head first into the bridge. And uh, and he wipes it out, just absolutely wipes it out with a throom sound effect. And we see all the abandoned cars flying in every direction and the suspension cable snapped and whirling around. Great page here. Um, turning to page four, panel six. Claire is getting the, the skull splitter ready to use on Godzilla, and she has this look of, it's all sorts of emotions mixed together. It's anger, it's determination, it's uh, a little bit of pride in herself, and she looks ready to kill. She's been through just as much as Boxer has over the course of this series. You know, we're not, we're not really sure what happened to her between Vancouver and now, and she looks like she is ready to just take some Daikaiju tail and and take names here. So great, great piece of work by by Gain here. The the eyes tell it all on Claire in this panel. Uh, turning over to page eight, the gravity beams just completely toss uh, Godzilla aside once again. And I mean, Godzilla is a massive monster, you know, especially this style, which is sort of a mix of the Heisei and the Millennium style. Just a big, bulky, powerful monster. And and Kaiser Ghidorah is making him look small and, and almost like a ragdoll throwing him around, really putting over the power of Kaiser Ghidorah. Uh, although this does uh, lead to a very amusing bit. I mentioned that we were getting certain scenes that were showing like a news feed. 
And on this page, we get one. We see Kaiser Ghidorah throwing Godzilla back once again. And the ticker says, Godzilla ensnared in Kaiser Ghidorah's gravity beam. My question, how does the media know to call them gravity beams? You know, I know to call them that because Toho has told me that's what they are called. How does the media know that? Maybe they got the press uh, booklet from Toho for the movie. Hmm? Something to consider, right? On page uh, nine, <laughs> this is really amusing. Um, Harrison is, is flying the chopper, and Godzilla is just about to be thrown into them by the gravity beams. And Harrison's caption boxes narrate most of the issue. And uh, there's a great line here. He says, one word flashed inside my skull like a flickering neon sign. Bollocks, 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 bollocks. The use of bollocks in this ish, in this series has been has been great, and and seeing Harrison adapt it from his dad uh, really is is a nice touch as well, and that made me laugh the first time I saw it. Uh, page ten, I mentioned last issue that we saw a great shot from Gain showing the size and scale of everything. We get another one here, as Godzilla and Kaiser Ghidorah are must be miles above New York City here. We can see all the different uh, boroughs above uh, as, as we're standing uh, or looking down from the city and the monsters are very small we can see just how high up they are and we get a scale or excuse me a sense of the great grand scale of this battle that has completely destroyed new york city uh just an amazing uh, shot here and again kaiser Ghidorah, we get to see a full shot of him so we get to see all four of his legs his two tails you know very neat shot here because even though they're very very small on the page still some good detail there very nice work uh, page 11, panel 1, just choom is the sound effect as Kaiser Ghidorah lands on Godzilla after dropping him from the sky. Uh, just youch. Uh, it, it reminds me very much of when he does, when King Ghidorah does this to Anguirus and destroy all monsters. You know, again, we don't think of, we think of King Ghidorah, and in this case Kaiser Ghidorah, as being a flyer and a beam type of monster, but he's really powerful and really heavy, so the stomp here is great. I really like it. But things uh, turn up for our heroes, because on the panel four of that page, in swoops Rodan. And, um, I mean, just great. It's Godzilla's oldest ally against the ultimate form of his, his uh, arch-nemesis. I got a lot of shades of Monster Zero, the end of Monster Zero here, where it's Godzilla and Rodan fighting King Ghidorah. Really great to see Rodan make it to the finale here. Anguirus, not as fast as Rodan, probably still swimming his way over. He'll arrive sometime next week, and then they'll shine a bright light on him and he'll go away, but that's neither here nor there. Pages 12 and 13, a two-page splash of... There's been so many glorious two-page splashes in this series. Why not have one more? The four-way battle for Earth is what I call this. As from left to right, we see the skull splitter being fired from the chopper at one of Kaiser Ghidorah's heads. Rodan is hacking at the center head with his talons from above. And then on the, the last head is menacing Godzilla, who's getting ready to attack on the right-hand side. The level of detail here is fantastic. The skin textures and tones and the scales on all three of the monsters really look amazing. Uh, there's, it's, it's just great. I mean, I, I, I would put a poster of this up. And, and the caption is great. Harrison says, the fight to save the planet was on. I mean, does, do you need anything more than that? It's all told right here. Just, just beautiful, beautiful spread. 
page 15, panel 3, decapitation. Uh, Rodan uses his uh, his more powerful wings, create a gale force wind. Again, reminded a little bit of, of how powerful Rodan's wings were shown to be like in Final Wars when he creates the sonic boom by flying through the streets of New York, ironically. There's a great sound effect as Kaiser King Ghidorah's um, head is, is, is stripped off. He's going, hurrah, ulk! And so it's, to me, that sounds like uh, Kaiser Ghidorah's sort of sound that gets cut off right in midstream by the head being snapped right off. Uh, of course, Rodan doesn't do much better. He's immediately blasted, almost like Team Rocket from an early episode of Pokemon, just right over the horizon. And we don't see Rodan again. He is... Adios, bye-bye, farewell, see you later. He is no longer involved because Kaiser King Ghidorah was not happy about that little maneuver. Um, page 16, uh, Godzilla takes off another one of Kaiser Ghidorah's heads, this time using his own, Kaiser Ghidorah's, one of his heads as a weapon to remove the other. The This is very gory, actually. Uh, there's blood splattering everywhere, but in a nod to maybe just being artful, or maybe just not to have this much gore all over a monster comic, this is done in silhouette. Now, there is some blood on the top of the page where we see Kaiser Ghidorah with one of his heads missing. But here, the decapitation, which has splatter like you wouldn't believe, it's done in on a blue uh, a blue background, easy for me to say, with the monsters actually, like I said, in silhouette. So, really very tastefully done here for a very gruesome scene of Godzilla ripping off Kaiser Ghidorah's second head. Page 17, Godzilla lets out with a point-blank blast, there's no other word for it, of atomic breath. And and you see um, Kaiser Ghidorah's reaction. He's rearing back. This is the first time they've really, really made him rear back. And we see blood being ripped off of the decapitated head, scales being stripped off his, his tails and the remaining head. There is power absolute power behind this shot. It just looks fantastic. And um, this series has done a really good job of showing the power of the atomic breath, and this uh, panel is no exception to that. And then uh, Kaiser Ghidra collapses, and it's one big panel, takes up most of the bottom half of the page of Throom, with Godzilla just absolutely crushing Kaiser Ghidra's head underneath his foot, and we see his uh, his claws over his uh, over Kaiser Ghidorah's eyes, and it's just, it's triumphant, absolutely triumphant. And then on page 18, Godzilla crunches him down one more time, and then on panel three, he raises his arms and bellows, "Screeonk!" And it's like, yes, all the other monsters are down. Godzilla has has won, and all the space monsters are defeated. And uh, right then. Panel 4, Hikaru cheers, Godzilla did it! And we see Boxer very conspiratorially uh, leaning over Harrison's shoulder, and he's got this a look in his eyes that could that could kill. And he says, yeah, boy, oh, get me right over Big G's head, close as you can. And I, I love that we're, that Boxer's not done yet, because that was the impetus for this whole series. Now, this has been going on for a year. And for a better part of that year, Boxer and his team have been hunting down monsters. And, you know, it you would almost be excused for forgetting why Boxer was doing this in the first place. Because Godzilla killed his daughter. And Godzilla killed another girl under his charge in in the first issue of this series. And so Boxer was out for revenge the entire 
time. And and we it almost it's not that that it was ignored because it wasn't, but it didn't it wasn't the forefront. And now with all the threats down, Boxer he's still not satisfied. Nothing has been resolved for him, and I love it. Great bit of character work by Swarzynski, and it's just fantastic. I love this panel. Everything comes together in this panel. Page 19, panel 4, we get to see Boxer's flashback to his time with his daughter. He's helping her ride a bike, and happier days is all you can say with that, you know, and this is, you see Boxer smiling, like a broad smile, which we haven't really seen. We've seen him give a lot of wry smiles, or kind of cruel smiles, but never actually looking happy. So seeing this is, is, you know, his line of, I'm going to take him down, is very fitting. There's absolutely nothing left for Boxer now but his revenge on Godzilla. Page 21, panel 2, as Boxer jumps out with the skull splitter right down Godzilla's gullet, we see Harrison yell, Dad! And this is not like Dad, which is something different altogether. This is a little more meaningful and emotional. And um, it's the look on his face again, the, the eyes convey all the emotion as he finally breaks his vow of silence after 13 issues and many, many years. And, uh, and then in, in the panel four, we just see Claire and Harrison tearing up. Hikaru is just looking on. She didn't really know Boxer as well as these do. And we see Harrison tearing up as uh, Godzilla is clearly in pain, but he's not defeated. He's hurting. We see the, the pink beams kind of coming off his head, and he's roaring in pain, but he's not defeated. And finally, the last page of the story, page 22, uh, we see Godzilla stirring in the ocean as Harrison vows to continue his father's work. And it very clearly says, the end. And honestly, if the IDW Godzilla series ended here, I would have no problem with that whatsoever. It does, and it continues on, and we will talk about the next series down the road some point, but... Man, what, what a finish. Uh, just a rousing, rip-roaring finale to the series. You can almost hear the soundtrack during the monster sequences. And, and again, another really good sign, I think, of a good comic is that same feeling that you get, like I said. Boxer reminds us what the impetus for this whole series was about right at the end. We've gotten so caught up in the daikaiju aspects of the story that we almost... Not really, but almost forget about the human motivations. But it all ties back together, and I really like that Swierzynski brings it all back full circle. Boxer, who oddly, like Oda over in the Half-Century War, goes out on his own terms with Godzilla. He's not defined by anyone but himself at the end of this. There was nothing else for Boxer but revenge, but he, in some small way, helped defend the Earth and reconciled with his estranged son in the process. The series did a hell of a job juggling the humans and the multiple monsters without making either one feel less important than the other. A strength of the comic book format when it comes to giant monster stories that we don't always see in film. The best films do this very well, lesser films not so much. Definitely a good job here in this series. Far superior to Kingdom of Monsters in pretty much all respects. This is a classic Godzilla story, which I would wholeheartedly recommend to any monster fan. In closing, all I can say, bollocks. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back for more on Earth Destruction Directive.
Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raidine with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun. Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns. They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun Warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raidine, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. Alright, we're back on Earth Destruction Directive. And now we're going to take a look at Marvel Comics Shogun Warriors number 5. Shogun Warriors number 5 has a cover date of June 1979 and carries a price of 40 cents. Doug Mensch is our writer, Herb Trimpey penciler, Dan Green inker, J. Rosen letterer, A. Yankus colorist, Alan Milgram is the editor, and Jim Shooter is the editor-in-chief in a story entitled into the Lair of Demons. In the city of Metrox, the hybrid half-robot, half-organic mech monster is on a rampage, and all that stands between him and total destruction is Genji Odashu and her Shogun warrior Kombatra, who is split into five individual combat modules. With the other Shogun warriors on the way, Genji does her best to hold the mech monster in check, piloting the Delta V1 flying module while telepathic robots called Centrons pilot the other four. While Combatra's five-way assault keeps the powerful mech monster busy, it is not enough to cause any sort of damage. As Richard Carson and Alongo Savage jet to the scene in Raideen and Dangard Ace, Savage contacts Shogun Sanctuary to see if there is any intelligence on the monster. Dr. Tambora and the other scientists report that information is inconclusive, the monster exhibits traits of both a machine and a living thing, meaning that, as Tambora Bluntsy bluntly puts it, the Shogun Warriors are on their own. He does suggest that the only way to stop the monster may be to find its source. Raiden and Dangard Ace arrive at the city, with Genji thankful for the reinforcements. Carson blasts the monster with a Screamer Hawk missile, then wraps a steel antenna tower around it. The mech monster shrugs the blows off heating itself up with a mysterious internal source and melting away its bonds. Savage tries a strafing run with Dangard's formidable arsenal, but the mech monster is a little more than stunned. This does, however, leave him vulnerable to another five-way attack from Combatra, and the combined efforts are enough to drive the mech monster out of the city. The Shoguns prepare to follow, but Genji tells her teammates that she is going to trace where the mech monster came from and investigate, grimly telling Carson and Savage, good luck stopping it. Following the path of carnage left by the monster, Genji approaches the haunt of evil. Inside, we find Lieutenant Magar being dressed down by Lord Maurikon for his meddling. Magar offers that the newly enchanted mech monster is more powerful than it was as a machine, but Maurikon's sentence for the treacherous Magar is interrupted by the long-range sensors picking up Combatra's approach. Maurikon orders Magar to stop the intruder, and Magar obeys, but all the while thinking that he will soon prove Maurikon to be a traitor to the old ways. While Savage and Carson have re-engaged the mech monster and are having a tough time of it, Genji arrives at the outside of the volcanic Haunt of Evil and launches Delta V-1 to scout inside. Her approach is cut short by a series of drone weapons under Magar's control, which blasts the jet to the ground in a spectacular crash, leaving Genji prone in her enemy's stronghold. Marikon has Genji dragged outside 
where the servants of evil find the rest of Combatra. Malarkhan is beside himself, elated that not only have they captured one of their foe's agents, but also a robot, and that he will use their own science against them. Next issue, Shogun versus Shogun. Ooh, a good issue this time. After the setup with the mech monster and Combatra splitting into the five different components, this, this really pays off on both of those. Really a fun issue. Let, let's get right into it. On our cover, it actually depicts a scene from inside the book, which I always like, as we see Riding smashing the antenna tower over the back of the mech monster. And I like at the very bottom here, we've got all the people running away in terror. I think that's always a nice touch in uh, any type of monster book, but especially here where it's all giant monsters, so to see everybody running away, very nice. Uh, page one, the splash page here is very frenetic. Uh, the five modules of Combatra are zooming all around. Uh, some are behind the mech monster, some are in front, some are beside it. And uh, the, the mech monster's in mid-flight, so we get to see it above the city. And in the background, the very back, we see a uh, the city is completely in flames. We just see yellow flames with the shambled ruins of buildings around it. Very nice intro. And again, th this could have been the cover as well if they didn't want to use Rydeen. If they wanted to put this type of image on the cover, that would have been really nice. This is one of those Bronze Age books where the splash page is often a second cover, and this one is no exception in that sense. Page 3, panel 2, we see one of the Centrons, which are the cybernetic robots used uh, to pilot the other four modules of Combatra. This is very kind of amusing, because the Centron is actually a humanoid robot. It's a yellow robot. He's got like some uh, circuitry on his chest and a big, bulbous, almost mushroom-shaped head with a rudimentary face on it. Back in the 70s, you know, AI couldn't just be a computer. It actually had to be a robot. I, I really like this. It only appears this one time. We get dialogue from the Centrons as they battle against the mech monster, and they say, this is effective, this is ineffective. So it does, that there's four of these little robots sitting there driving these things is, is really just amusing to me. I really like that. Pages 5 and 6, we get reintroduced to the followers of the light, including, of course, Dr. Tambura. We also meet somebody named uh, Basque. Uh, we meet somebody named, once again, Sherna, and once again, Charn. And once again, other than Dr. Tambura, not a single one of them makes any impression whatsoever, to the point that I just had to relook at the comic to remember their names. Tambura, because earlier in the series he got to talk to the Shoguns and put them through their paces. We remember him. These others are really just there to fill out the ranks, and they don't really differentiate themselves very good. Uh, so, uh, we'll, I don't know if we're going to learn more about these folks and if they're going to make a better impression down the line, but for right now, they're just there to have Tambora to have somebody to talk to. Of course, Tambora basically says good luck to the Shoguns on their second mission. So other than the fact that these people can store the Shoguns and I guess repair them, they don't really offer much <laughs> from a tactical standpoint. So interesting to see if they continue to rely on Tambora and his folks to give any type of intelligence in the future since they basically said, uh, you know, good luck with all that right here. Well, that was funny. Uh, page 7, the Combatra modules show off all their individual attacks on the mech monster. Uh, this this is neat as we get to see the different uh, abilities. Uh, Centron 5, which is the ground rover, it actually leaps off the ground with its drill tanks, and tr or, uh, with its drills, 
because it's a drill tank, and tries to hurt the mech monster. Uh, the Sky Saucer gets blasted by the mech monster. And uh, actually, Centron 3, which... <laughs> it looks like a an earth mover of some kind. It's a tracked vehicle, and it's got two steam shovel hands on the front. It actually picks up rocks and throws them like a rockapult. A very 80s form of attack, despite this being a 70s comic. I really like that one. It's just grabbing up earth and throwing at it, and it doesn't seem to care what's going on around it. I think that's pretty neat. Of course, the mech monster simply catches the rocks, so not the most effective attack technique. Uh, page 10, we get a second full-page splash as the cavalry arrives, as Rydeen and Dangard Ace arrive in their flight modes. And uh, very neat, because again, Combatra is still split up, so we see the two aerial modules kind of zooming around the bottom of the page, with uh, Rydeen and Dangard Ace coming in from the top right, blasting at the mech monster with their arsenal. Rydeen's firing his screamer missiles, Dangard Ace has... Uh, two laser cannons coming from his shoulders. And uh, the Screamer missiles get some real nice sound effects, which is Griar! Because you can just imagine them, I guess, kind of shrieking as they fly along. Neat, neat page. Again, uh, Trimpy... I, you know when you don't necessarily think of Herb Trimpy as somebody to do robots and giant monsters. I, again, normally think of Trimpy doing human-sized monsters. I think of him on The Incredible Hulk. But he does real good with the, the full-sized robots and monsters here. I really like his... Uh, his artwork on this book. Page 14, panels 2 through 4, we get a nice three-panel sequence of Rydeen transforming. Now, Rydeen was the first transforming robot toy. I'm almost certain of that. I've, I've heard some people say that's not true, but I'm pretty sure he is. But it does show off the transformation, including how simplistic it is. You know, basically, he straightens his legs out, his arms uh, come out from the side, and his faceplate opens up. That's all there is to it. But back in the 70s, that was a big deal. We didn't have multi-step you know, uh, step transformations like you would with even the early Transformers relative to the 70s. So this was very neat to see, and it's a very accurate depiction of how the toy actually transforms in the DX writing. So that that was pretty neat. I'm going to jump over now to page 23, panel 2. Um, uh, Megar is is using the uh, automated defenses at the Haunt of Evil to attack uh, Genji, and in this panel he looks really red. It looks like he's spent a little too long in the sun since he got back to the Haunt of Evil because he's colored correctly earlier in the book, but here I don't know if it was just a I guess it's just a mistake because it's it's all the faces in the panel because we see some of his goons behind him have almost. Um, it, I mean, just a, a beet red. They've had a kind of face. So, little coloring mistake. I'm assuming, again, you know, he's uh, he got caught in a really intense sunbeam after, after uh, Mauricon dressed him down. So. Later on down the page in panel 6, we get another panel where there's a lot of great action as the Delta V1 is assaulted by all of the automated weapons. We get uh, a lot of great sound effects. We get boom, doom, choom! And all that made me think of was the uh, Guy Gardner, bad guys, Boom, Thum, and Buck 50. So, <laughs> uh, awesomely covered by Sean Engel over on Just One of the Guys. I have to admit I thought about that. But the panel, again, looks great because Genji's flying right at us and we see just the weapons blast from all around. Really nice, nice panel layout here by Trimpy. I really like this one. Uh, page 26, panels 5 and 6. Uh, the assault is too much and Genji crashes. She tries to set down, uh, she tries to hit an emergency landing button. I'm not sure what exactly that would do, but she fails and she crashes directly into one of the rock walls and it really looks harsh. The 
cockpit's canopy just flies off. All I could think of with that is, like, if you've got a G.I. Joe plane, like maybe you've got your Sky Striker and you crash it, and then the plastic canopy would just kind of fly off. But here, it, it just looks real rough. And then in the next panel, we see Malarkon and his goons closing in, and Genji's just laying prone. It looks like she tried to crawl out and collapsed. And that's, that's not good. It's just, ouch, is all I can say for that. On uh, <laughs> the next page, on page 27, panel th uh, 2, uh, Lord Malarkon, dull surprise. And uh, anyone who is familiar with Dreamwave's Transformers comics from the early part of the uh, 21st century is familiar with dull surprise. His mouth is just kind of agape, and his eyes have no emotion whatsoever. He's like, uh... It's like an extreme close-up. It's just a very strange panel. And, and Malarkon looks like he's got a little too much sun in this panel as well. So overall, kind of an odd an odd panel here. Also on the same page, we do get to look back in on Dangard Ace and Rydeen battling the Mech Monster. It's a very cool-looking fight here. I'd like to see more of this in the next issue. Uh, they're out in the countryside. We can still see the city burning in the background, which is crazy. And, you know, Dangard's opening up with his chest lasers and the mech monster's blasting Rydeen right in the face. Uh, hopefully number uh, number six will give us some closure on that fight. Uh, finally, page 30 is the uh, last page of the comic and a third splash page. We get three full-page splashes in this comic, which, again, is appropriate when you're dealing with gigantic robots and monsters, but a little unusual, I think, for Marvel and DC, for that matter, from this period. The immense scale of Kombatra is amazing here, even without its head, because we've got Malarkon and his goons standing at the feet of uh, Kombatra, and they don't even come... They're about the same height as the wheels set into Kombatra's feet, and we're kind of all a little bit of a forced perspective looking up. And it's just a great sense of scale. I really like that. And, of course, uh, Magar is there complaining and plotting as he does. Uh, just I really like the detailing here on Kombatra. As I said, we get to see all the little components in his legs, uh, going up to his arms and chest, very neat. And a great cliffhanger. I mean, just in big, big letters, next issue, Shogun versus Shogun. And you know, this, this is paying off, or it seems like it's going to be paying off, the whole thing we've had about the difference between sorcery and science on the side of the evil folks. So this was really neat. Um, uh, this, let's see Let's see if there's any interesting ads in this one. Uh, kind of the same, very similar ads to last time. We do get uh, Here Come the Trons, the Micronaut Robot Clowns That Make You Laugh uh, from the World of Micronauts. I'm not familiar with these. I have no idea what that is. A little before my time. I look at those and I think of robotics or zoids, but zoids were a lot cooler than these. Uh, let's see here. We do get a, uh, a Marvelites ad, it screams, for some special Marvel merchandise, including uh, uh, Captain America, Spider-Man, and Thor mugs and steins and pencil caddies. Uh, we get a, uh, a money or key wallet, whole key case, uh, super socks you can choose from Spidey, Hulk, Star Wars, or Battlestar Galactica, a Spider-Man toothbrush. I mean, this stuff's amazing. I love this. I love the Stein. I'd love an Iron Man Stein. I have how many? I have three Iron Man pint glasses. Um, my father got me the Iron Man 
Toon Tumblr pint glass that was the exclusive to New York Comic Con back a couple of years ago. I think I want to say it was 2009. It was right when the movie came out. And that one's really nice. Then I got a pair of them that I found at Ross that have some really neat George Tusca Iron Man art on them. I know. I know what you're thinking. Luke, George Tusca? Really? Well, I've said this before on different shows, but I, I like George Tusca on Iron Man. For whatever reason, he did really good doing Iron Man. So I would love none of those. But that Spider-Man Stein looks fantastic. Uh, we get a two-page ad for free Super Shot Vet, which is from Marks. Uh, Marks did uh, scale model cars. And there, this one is it. The Super Shot Racers had a little pull core that you'd rev them up and rev up their internal spring and then let them go and they'd drive. We also get a uh, house ad for Shogun Warriors and the Micronauts. I think we've we've seen this one before. Uh, it's it's just funny to see the two licensed books like this, and they it always amuses me that we've got the Shogun Warriors with their giant and the Micronauts which are tiny. There, there's a joke there somewhere. I don't know what it is. And then of course this is um, you get if you subscribe to these two, you get the Marvel special edition of Battlestar Galactica. And again, I think I've said before, I have the paperback of that, which is actually not bad. Not not bad at all. Let's see, anything else interesting in here? Oh, we do get, of course, a Hostess ad. And um, this was uh, Spider-Man starring in Hot Shot on the Block, which deals with Spider-Man being accosted by his old enemy, Hot Shot. Now, I do remember in the 90s when Kurt Busiek brought in one of the Hostess villains into um, the Masters of Evil. I want to say it was in Thunderbolts, if I'm remembering correctly. brought in the Ice Master. Now, if he wasn't going to use Ice Master, this guy could work, too. He's got a great look. He's got an orange uh, jumpsuit on. He's got a red belt uh, uh, that looks almost like the Flash's belt, except it's flames instead of a lightning bolt. Got kind of a yellow flame burst on his chest, red gloves, yellow boots, yellow uh, trim on his gloves, and then a yellow crest of flame on his head. This guy looks pretty neat, and he can apparently generate and sling fire. Not bad. You know, bring this guy back. How about, you know, why not? You know, you, you tried bringing Morbius back, you canceled that book in less than a year. Why not bring this guy in? He can't do any worse, right? No, I'm not bitter about them canceling Morbius, not at all. And on the back, of course, we get the uh, Spalding Presents Streetball with Rick Barry and Dr. J, one of my personal favorites. Um, and it's it's just such a, a uh, I don't know, uh, anachronism to see this now. Uh, I love seeing all the uh, the kids with the uh, the incredibly bad afros, and Dr. J and Rick Barry look fantastic on this, though. So. Um, anyway, action to plenty this issue, as the mech monster proves a match for the Shoguns. The behind-the-scenes stuff is not as interesting this time out. Uh, the stuff at Shogun Sanctuary is kind of like, really? Huh? But we do get the neat stuff for Genji striking out on her own, which I think speaks to her character and is, is, is seems to be leading in an interesting place story-wise. And um, I like that it really shocked uh, Carson and Savage, that they, you know, they'd always assume, well, we're going to work together, but she just goes off on her own. The art remains an absolute perfect fit for the story, and the cliffhanger really has me excited to see where things are going in number six. I really dug this issue. Very cool. Cannot wait to cover the next one. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back, do some emails, and close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? 
to portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. All right, we're back on Earth Destruction Directive. I've got uh, several emails to read, so rather than get into any long preamble, I'm just going to go ahead and get started. Our first email is entitled Ultraman Episodes, and it's from uh, my good friend Professor Allen. The professor writes, Luke, I continue to love the Ultraman episodes. No pressure, but this is four down, 35 to go. And, uh, yeah, I thought about that after I posted the last one. It's like, wow, I can, you know, two episodes of time. This is going to be a lot of podcast. And I've actually gotten a lot of good feedback on the Ultraman episodes. I'm trying to decide how I want to address that. And maybe you'll be seeing a little bit more Ultraman output from me in the very near future. So stay tuned. The professor continues. I am curious if you watch the episodes with the dubbing or with the subtitles. And if there are multiple versions of either of these. I ask because, on my version, the dubs and subtitles are different. Most of the time the differences are minor, as when the subtitle may note that a monster is 200 miles away, while the subtitle says the monster is 500 miles away. I think he, means, I think he meant one of those to be a dub. But some of the differences are actually more substantial. I watch with both activated so I can note, and usually chuckle at, the differences. Do you have any information about why these are different, and if either the dubs or subtitles are generally thought of as more accurate? Um, on the, I have the Mill Creek DVD of Ultraman, which is the four-disc set of the complete series. These are very easy to find, very cheap. You can find it on Amazon, I think, for $7 is the price I saw on it yesterday. But be sure to go to 2TrueFreaks.com, click on the Amazon.com link, right? Anyway, the on that particular release, the dub track is the one that was created back in the late 60s when the series was shown on television in California and Hawaii. So it it's, it's a vintage dub. It's not a new created dub. The subtitle track was newly created when that DVD was put together. Generally speaking, I believe the subtitles are more accurate in that the dub does simplify things a little bit. The most obvious one is that Cap the captain's name is shortened to Captain Mura, uh, just so that it would be, I think, easier to say than Muramatsu. So I think you can go either way. I normally watch with the subtitles, but with the caveat that there are a few episodes on that Mill Creek DVD set where the subtitles do not line up. It's on disc three. There's about half the episodes where the subtitles are out of sync, so you have to watch them dubbed. Honestly, the dub is quite respectful, and like I said, other than some minor simplification here and there, it's actually quite uh, accurate. Well, I don't want to say quite accurate, I don't speak Japanese, but it's quite watchable. I really like the dub as well as the subtitle. I usually prefer to watch subtitles if I have them available. I will watch some of them dubbed, though. 
Uh, I'm trying to think if there was any particular one that I watched. There was a few, like I said, right there on disc three. I want to say the episode with Telesodon, where the uh, underground people invade the surface world. That this, I had to watch that one dubbed, and a few others around there. So I don't have a preference, but generally speaking, the subtitles are, are more accurate. I know on the Shout Factory releases of Ultra Q and Ultra 7, there's not an English language option, so you have to watch them subtitled. And again, those subtitles were created new for those releases, so you're probably pretty good with both of those. The Professor wraps up, thanks for the show, keep up the good work, Professor Allen, host of the Quarterbin Podcast, co-host of the Shortbox Showcase, two fantastic shows on the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network I would heartily recommend. Quarterbin Podcast is like the ultimate bite-sized little podcast, I really like it. Shortbox Showcase, the Professor does with his daughter, Emily, and that is also just a really... I like that show because they have a very good rapport. You know, uh... One of the one of my absolute favorite shows is Hey Kids Comics, as is pretty much everyone who listens to comic book podcasts says that, because of the relationship between Michael and Andrew, and the back and forth give and take of a father and son. Well, here with the professor and Emily, their their the relationship is obviously different. It's a father and daughter, so the give and take there is is very uh, very fun to listen to. Really good show. They've just done a couple of uh, really good shows about. Uh, I think it was BuzzFeed's list of 60 comics you need to have read, and their uh, <laughs> their exchanges on that were, were classic. Really good stuff. Thank you for writing in, Professor. I hope to get some more Ultraman stuff out there for your consumption in the near future. Our next email is uh, entitled Earth Destruction Directive Comments and is from Matthew Mastro Giovanni. Hope I said that right. I, I know what it's like to have a last name that's hard to pronounce, Matt. And Matt writes, Dear Mr. Giaconetti, I've only recently discovered your podcast. I started back at number one and just got through number 13 today. I'm totally digging the show so far and especially love the recap of each movie that you're discussing. Matt, thank you very much. That's something, and again, I don't want to toot my own horn because, frankly... I'm a pretty low-rent podcaster when you get right down to it. You look at some of the other shows in our network, I'm low man on the totem pole. And I mean that in, in every sense of the word. But something I've always thought I was pretty good at was writing synopsis. <laughs> this gets back to when I used to be in, in, in college. I would write, uh, I had my horror film review site, and I used to be really take a lot of time at working the synopsis and just you know, distilling down the film. So I'm very proud of my synopsis, so I really appreciate you saying that. Matt continues, I'm writing to comment on episode number 13, which was entitled, Dick Kong, Dick. After hearing this, I've got to get my hands on a copy. Haven't seen this since probably the 70s. Gotta say to your comment on why a mechanical ape to dig and why not a drill. How about Mogra? It would have been perfect, or at least Mechanobaragon. They're at least both burrowers. Anyway, hoping to hear an episode about Ultraman soon. Thanks for the show, Matt. Uh, yeah, I, I never... Mogra would have been perfect. Even the Showa Mogra, which is a mole, would have been a perfect fit for that because he burrows under the ground. That's what he does. And Mechanobaragon, I'd love to see that. You know, we've only gotten really robot versions of Godzilla and King Kong. We've never gotten a Mechanobaragon. What would they do with his ears? That's what I want to know. And would he have a horn? I'm sure he would have a big horn on the front. But what would they do with his ears? He would have been better suited to digging as well. Thank you very much for writing in, Matt. And again, I hope to have some more Ultraman content up very soon for, for everybody. 
Our next email comes from the man who, some say, once shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. And the man who, some say, despite his appearances as a legitimate businessman, actually runs the largest criminal network in Gotham City out of the Iceberg Lounge. We know him as Jack Dower. And Jack writes in saying, beware purple and yellow. Lieutenant Jack and Eddie. I love how I keep getting promoted in these. Ultraman, you have inspired me to try to get these Ultraman DVDs off Amazon. I found one DVD set at Toys R Us recently and really liked the monster suits. The show was crazy fun. I had no idea that there was more seasons to the show. You are educating the world through Earth Destruction Directive. I see a second career as a professor of pop culture if you are ever released from the police department. Something to think about for a cop on the edge. Uh, I'm glad that you've uh, been... I've expanded your horizons as far as uh, Ultraman is concerned. Yeah, the phasey thing is, you know, you don't realize this, but in Japan, and we've talked about this before, if a show is popular, they'll keep bringing back a new version of it every year. It doesn't continue on like a show we traditionally think about a show here in the States doing, where it's new seasons with the same characters. So, you know, uh, Ultraman itself only ran for 39 episodes, but there's hundreds and hundreds of episodes in the Ultraman series. Even more if you count the ones like Ultra Q and Ultra Galaxy. The DVD set you can get on Amazon, I've said this before again, the Mill Creek DVD set, totally worth it. Totally worth it. And if you can't wait for your shipping from Amazon, go ahead and go to Hulu.com, and for free you can watch all of the original Ultraman series on the dubbed form. Jack continues, Shogun Warriors. You are right, this Shogun Warrior issue was kind of a get-your-breath-build-some-character issues. Those issues are needed so that the audience can begin to relate to the characters. I wonder why Iron Man was never crossed over with the Shogun Warriors, or is there an issue I don't know about? Um, I don't believe Iron Man ever crossed over with the Shogun Warriors. I do know that in the late 100s, like 180-something, that Tony does cross over with the monster that was originally Godzilla's, uh, Marvel's Godzilla. Um, and cross over with Dr. Demonicus, but as far as I know, the only book that the Shogun Warriors ever crossed over into was their appearance in Fantastic Four, which only used the pilots and not the robots, and we'll cover that when I get to the end of the Shogun Warriors series. Jack continues, It would be great for you to cover the Marvel Godzilla title after you finish the Shoguns. I think it would set up a great contrast in styles, even with them being in the same genre. And yes, that's absolutely right, Jack. That is my intention. I'm just going to say it out right here. Once we finish Shogun Warriors, I have my essential Godzilla. I've got a few issues of the Marvel Godzilla, in, you know, actually single issues, but I've got the essential. We are doing Marvel Godzilla after we finish Shogun Warriors. Uh, Jack continues, in the 70s, Marvel purple and yellow means evil, in the same way green and yellow meant evil in the 60s. Of course, this is comparable to the way birds and bumbershoots equal villainy in the DC universe, of course. I'd also like to point out that there is a lot of uh, green and purple bad guys in the 60s as well. But yeah, purple, yellow, green, any combination of that is bad. It's very bad in the Marvel universe, I agree. I, I always think back to the original Melter wearing orange and green. Nothing's going to strike fear into you more than orange and green uh, suit like the Melter used to wear. <laughs> Here's my question. What does the term tokusatsu mean? Thanks for the great show. Keep them stomping and stay safe out there. Jack Dower. Uh, and 
Jack makes an interesting point. I think I may have introduced the term tokusatsu in the first episode and then never come back around to it again. Tokusatsu literally translates from the Japanese as special filming. And what it means in this context is a live-action special effects movie or show, as opposed to a live-action period piece or perhaps an animated show. Much in the same way that anime is not a genre, anime is a medium. Any type of show can be animated and called an anime. Uh, Tokusatsu is not a genre, despite what a lot of people on the internet seem to believe. It is simply a medium, a technique of filming. The first real tokusatsu was Gojira in 1954. From there, you know, that created the the rest of the monster films from the 50s and 60s into the 60s where we started seeing this on TV. Uh, um, Ultra Q, a very early one, obviously the first Ultra series. There was a Henshin Hero show called, I want to say... Was it Mirror Mask? Something like that from around the same time until we got into the more henshin hero uh, shows of the 70s, including Kamen Rider, the early days of the Super Sentai series. We also got other Kyodai hero shows like uh, Jumborg Ace and Fireman, and all the way through to the stuff that's coming out today. Now, the interesting thing is that tokusatsu does not specifically refer to things that are Japanese. When Doctor Who was shown in Japan... It was referred to as a tokusatsu show because it's a live-action show that deals with special effects. Thomas the Tank Engine, the early days of Thomas the Tank Engine, uh, possibly known as Thomas and Friends, depending on where you are in the world, was filmed with actual model railroads and model trains. That was a tokusatsu show. Now the show is all CG, and it really would not be considered a tokusatsu. But Thomas the Tank Engine was considered tokusatsu when it was imported in Japan. And they do love their trains in Japan, so that was always a good fit to me. So, if you hear tokusatsu, all that means is just think live action, guy in a suit, special effects of some kind. That's all that means. Now, like I said, a lot of people nowadays, especially on the internet, the younger sort of fans, want to say, oh, tokusatsu means specifically these shows. And it's like... And you hear questions like, oh, well, c- could this be an animated tokusatsu? And the answer is always maddeningly, no. By definition, it cannot be an animated tokusatsu. I don't care how much you love Voltron, it'll never be animated tokusatsu. It cannot happen. Okay, It's a, it's a Super Sentai-style show, but it cannot be an animated tokusatsu. And that's a, for some reason, that really bugs me. I think it's because people, a lot of folks in the 90s demanded to call anime a genre when it's not, and I think that attitude is carried over. Uh, but I, ho- I hope that clears that up a little bit. And Jack has a PS. How would you rank Hoshino in the kid character category? Kenny from Gamera being a 1, and Johnny Sacco from Johnny Sacco and his flying robot as a 10. I would think Hoshino would be a solid 6, because he has some episodes where he is really annoying, but then he's got episodes uh, like we saw last time with the in the Naranga episode and in the excuse me the Ragon episode where he actually is pretty useful and and he's not just there to be you know comedy as we used to say or just to be there as a kid identifier he actually does contribute to the story Hoshino also has the very very admirable trait of going away he's not in every episode in fact when we get to the middle of the series he disappears for a good long chunk and when he comes back you're almost surprised thank you very much for writing in jack really really always appreciate hearing from you and our last email today comes from 
uh, Bill, and I don't have his full name here on the email, so I'm sorry, Bill. He writes in uh, EDD, and Bill writes, love the podcast. Haven't heard from you in a while and hope all is well. Picked up a DVD plus ultraviolet version of Pacific Rim. Just a great flick. Agreed, uh, Bill. 100% agreed on that. He continues, Del Toro obviously really loves his genre and is well-versed in it as well. I can only hope Godzilla 2014 is handled with as much respect and love. I would really be disappointed, at the very least, if they F it up again. Yeah, I, I agree completely. So far, everything we've seen out of Legendary for Godzilla 2014 has really impressed me. There was a very... There was a trailer, a teaser trailer, that was online for a very short amount of time that made famous use of Oppenheimer's I Am Become Death speech, which leads me to believe that this is really going to focus on kind of the nuclear horror aspect of the character of Godzilla, and I think that's a good thing. Also, we started to get a little bit of information uh, about the film kind of in a speculatory way based on information that's been released about the toy line. Judging from what we've seen in the toy line um, previews, and again, we haven't seen pictures or anything, but as far as case assortments and such, that it appears that Godzilla is going to have some other monsters to fight, specifically at least two monsters called the Mutos. And there's descriptions of an eight-legged Muto and a flying Muto. And evidently the eight-legged one is not supposedly it's supposed to be more like a centipede style, and that the trailer that was shown at San Diego Comic-Con, which I was never able to find online, supposedly had a glimpse of this centipede style Muto, but we'll see if that comes to fruition or not as we get closer to the film's release next year. Bill continues, also picked up a copy of Ultra Galaxy Legend Mega Monster Battle the Movie. Another awesome flick. Heck yes! Great movie. That's the first of the Ultraman Zero movies. It is fantastic. Bill continues, 100 plus monsters and all the Ultramen, including the original Shin Hayata. What a great take. Anyway, I hope you are well and look forward to anything you have coming up. Regards, Bill. Bill, thank you very much for writing in. I want to say that first Ultra Galaxy movie, Ultra Galaxy Mega Monster Battle the movie, is... I mean, that, that's like an ultra-wet dream almost, because not only does it have all these monsters like he talks about, but really, we get to see the Land of Light, and we get to see everything take place in the Ultra's home world. So they're not limited to three minutes. So there's some really great fight choreography, lots of cameos. I think every single Ultra shows up, including some of the uh, obscure ones, like the ones from the animated pilot that was done with Hanna-Barbera. Uh, which is Ultraman Chuck, Ultra Woman Beth, and I'm blanking on the third one, but the three of them show up. What's really, really funny to me is all of the Showa Ultras get at least one scene where they're spotlighted. So Ultraman and Ultra 7, they play a big role in the story. Zafi gets to play a big role in the story. There's a scene where the main enemy is invading the Land of the Light, and he, he takes on Ultraman Jack, Ultraman 80 and Ultraman Ace in a great fight. Ultraman Taro has a huge role to play in the story, kind of behind the scenes. Because of things that happen, he plays a very important role from a narrative standpoint, even though he's not in the movie that much. And Ultraman Leo is the uh, trainer of Ultraman Zero. So there's a lot of great scenes of Zero and Leo fighting, which makes sense as Leo is the uh, resident martial arts master of the Ultra Heroes. Just, I mean, I love that movie. And the thing is, you can find that movie on eBay relatively easily. 
and the subtitles for it are fantastic. I have one that's from Malaysia. The English subtitles are perfect. Absolutely perfect. Great film. Definitely check that one uh, out if you get the chance. So that fills up, or excuse me, that finishes up the email bag. I want to thank everybody for writing in. I always appreciate getting email. I've said this before, but getting emails is kind of the lifeblood of any podcaster. So thank you very much, guys. If anyone out there would like to email in, the address, as always, is earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Yes, I'm still on Yahoo. I read the other day that apparently that's all Yahoo is good for, is having old, outdated email addresses. And I'm like, oh, it works, you know. But anyway, be that as it may, the question always comes up at the end of the episode. Luke, what are you covering next time? And we are going back to television for the next time, but we are going to be doing something a little bit more American, as, as we are going to be covering the Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. Now, those of you who are uh, grew up in the 80s and 90s, as I did, will probably remember this show if you're listening to Earth Destruction Directive. This, of course, was the American adaptation slash insert show for the Subaraya show Gridman, which I've described in the past as Ultraman meets Tron. So we're going to be taking a look at this show in honor of it entirely being released on DVD, with the second volume having recently come out. We're also going to be looking at the next issue of Shogun Warriors, which will hopefully deliver on that Shogun versus Shogun cliffhanger that is promised. And of course we'll have your emails, and we might have one or two other things going on. We'll see what uh, if anything interesting comes up between now and then. But until then, thank you very much for listening, and keep on stomping. <laughs> Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, we will read them on the show. If you'd like to visit our forum, you can head over to www.forumforgeeks.com and come on down to the Two True Freaks section. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Anything you buy during your next Amazon session after clicking that link will help keep the lights on here at Two True Freaks. You can also find me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.